everything is measured at work based on the amount of time that people sit in chairs. Although we've now come to this point where technology is literally starting to release people from those, those chains, right? So, you know, we're able to work virtually. You and I are talking over a virtual link right now. I think you're in Los Angeles. I'm here in New York. We're working right now. Um, we did it at a time that made sense for both of our schedules. And that's sort of going back to this, this model that originally existed around human productivity, where it's not about showing an employer that you're sitting there all day to make them essentially feel better for the fact that you know, they're paying you, but they also have like a huge infrastructure that they need to support around you being there. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Olkvist. In this episode, I spoke with Catherine Zaleski, co-founder and president of Power to Fly, a platform to propel diversity hiring. Catherine co-founded Power to Fly with Milena Berry in 2014, after the birth of her first daughter and many years in the media. Her list of uh, accolades is quite long. She was employee number six at Huffington Post, executive director of digital at the Washington Post, and the founding managing editor of Now This. Catherine was named one of the most creative people in the business community in 2015 by Fast Company. Her essay, I'm Sorry to All the Moms I Used to Work With, was Fortune's most popular story of 2015 and sparked debate widely online about how we think about moms in the workplace. I've been excited about Power to Fly for years. Their mission is to find new creative ways that technology can help bring women into the workplace. And in this conversation, what really impressed me about Catherine is the way that she was willing to examine the traditional hiring model, which is, you know, post an ad, kind of cross your fingers that people apply and see who you end up with. And look at that a little bit more critically and think like, is this the best way that we can recruit women? Or do we need to be doing something more than this? And so what's interesting, and we discuss it in this episode, is Power to Fly has come up with a host of ways to completely reimagine the hiring process to get more women into the pipeline. I think listening to this episode, you might leave thinking like it's not enough to just say, well, women aren't applying. Catherine's also been pretty forthcoming about how becoming a mother herself has changed her own perspective about the kinds of structures we have at work. Uh, We also talk in this episode about how remote work might be especially valuable for potentially new mothers to come back to work. This is a solid, thought-provoking conversation that really made me re-examine the fundamental hiring processes that we've had in place for the last 40 years and made me question whether we want to throw some of those out. And lastly, a quick request. You recommending this show to your friends is the only way we can grow. If it's safe to do so, pause this right now and text this episode to someone you know who is maybe building a company themselves and wants to help create a more inclusive workplace. And without further ado, Catherine Zaleski. Catherine Zaleski, welcome to Innovation for All. Thank you so much, Shana, for having me. To start off with the biggest, broadest question possible, 
I look at the systems we have of work and and full-time work and traditional work, and I think there tend to be a lot of flaws. And my Mm -hmm. understanding is that you may agree with me. So my question to you is, what's wrong with work? Let's start out with the fact that... Let's think about how work was defined back in the Industrial Revolution when (laughs) you literally had a huge, huge shift in humanity where people went from being an agrarian calendar or schedule rather, where they were productive based on their productivity was sort of measured with how um, they were able to adapt to the world that was around them you know, from everything from, from the weather to the seasons you know, to when they could actually produce to feed themselves to a huge shift where you know, we had this employer-based model where in order to show that you were productive at work, you literally had to clock in to a factory in the morning and clock out. It wasn't necessarily a measure of your productivity. It was a measure of your time spent doing something that was supposed to be productive in the end. And so in so many ways, you know, and we've perpetuated this model now, like over 200 plus years, where everything is measured at work based on the amount of time that people sit in chairs. Although we've now come to this point where technology is literally starting to release people from those, those chains, right? So, you know, we're able to work virtually. You and I are talking over a virtual link right now. I think you're in Los Angeles. I'm here in New York. We're working right now. Um, we did it at a time that made sense for both of our schedules. And that's sort of going back to this, this model that originally existed around human productivity where it's not about showing an employer that you're sitting there all day to make them essentially feel better for the fact that you know they're paying you, but they also have like a huge infrastructure that they need to support around you being there. No, and it's funny. I agree that we do have this emphasis on hours in the ch- sort of butt in the chair or hours walking back and forth from the conference room to one's desk. But what I've wondered increasingly over the last few years is why do you think there's so little emphasis on the productivity component of it, right? So even if I am working a standard full-time job where I'm going to be there the nine to five plus, right. you know, the output that's measured doesn't really affect my compensation like one might imagine. So not only does hours worked represent sort of a poor proxy, but we aren't even measuring the thing that might be a better proxy with any greater care or concern. No, I mean, we're not. I mean, some companies do a better job, like 360 reviews and, and KPIs and OKRs. You know? So that's, that's more and more of a practice that if you're a sophisticated company, you're, you're adhering to. But I think there's still this incredible discomfort with letting people be productive under their own time. It's like you have to sort of... A manager has to make sure that someone's actually in the room to know that they're getting the most out of them. And that's because... You know, as we were growing up, it was just programmed into us that literally you would show your productivity by sitting there all day, by giving your time, but not your product so much. And so, you know, now that we're shifting back to this world where you can show product through a Google Doc or through a shared platform uh, like Salesforce, you know, for example, you can see how many meetings booked or um, there's all sorts of ways to be able to sort of look at productivity in ways that don't measure the amount of time that people are sitting in seats. So, I mean, that's that's something that's definitely happening. And you know, I think as as this, as new generations come in, they'll respect the ability to work flexibly, work remotely more, 
at the same time, humans are social animals and it is nice to be in the same space with people to, to collaborate, but it's not necessarily more productive. There's a famous saying that, or not a famous saying, but there's a saying amongst people that think about this stuff. And it's, um, you know, when have you actually ever gotten work done in the office? Mm-hmm. You get it done at home or on the weekends at night. And I have young kids. So it's like usually like nine to midnight when you know, they've hopefully gone to bed, which is rare. So you have a background in media. You were employee number six at Huffington Post, um, executive director of digital at the Washington Post, mm-hmm. county managing editor of Now This. So, you know, pretty solid media chops. Obviously, media had a transformation over the last 20 years with the rise of content consumption online. What on earth, what kind of masochist are you made you feel like, I know, instead, I'm going to go work in this other space where I'm going to figure out a way to get more women into tech? Yeah, I also worked at CNN, which was pretty masochistic in itself because I had to work the night shift. But um, part of it was you know, media. You, you, when you're in a newsroom, you do have to spend a lot of time in the newsroom because you're, you literally have to just scream across the room. Um, Huffington Post is a funny thing. We actually, when we were starting Huffington Post, I mean, we, in order to keep up with the schedule, the woman that I did the homepage with, who's actually the New York Times, her name is Alex McCallum, she's on the masthead there. So she's got a big job now. She, um, we worked at this crazy schedule where, you know, we would sort of switch off on the nights, but then we would each have, you know, we, then we would each let, allow each other to work from home in the morning in order to like make it all work. So I was doing this kind of remote flexible work back in you know 2005 out of necessity. It's the only way that we could keep up with the hours. But yeah, fast forward. I mean, I, when I was at Now This, I got pregnant, which was you know the plan. And I had looked around the room when I was at different news organizations, sort of like look at the people in general and think like, oh, you know, do I want to be here in 10, 15, 20 years? The people in front of me look like the people that I'm eventually growing in, in, into being. And people really do do that in more places. They look around and they're like, okay, do I belong here? Will I belong here in the future? Can I grow here? So that's why it's incredibly important to have inclusive, equitable workplaces, which at Power to Fly, we work with companies on. But you know, when I got pregnant, I was like, wow, there really aren't many women who are a little bit older than me in these newsrooms. It's so interesting to me that I've been in this world for the last like 10 years where I thought I could be anything, I could do anything. And I've had these, this different sort of model of person ahead of me, but none of those people have been pregnant or have had young children. None of them have been women with young children at home. They've all been like older men or, you know, people who are like much older than me who actually got through it, women who are the rare exception or, you know, people around my age who I really admire. But there was this huge gap of women in their 30s and early 40s. And that to me just seems so wrong, especially at a time when I was starting to see so many really intelligent women feel like they didn't have a path forward because they literally couldn't see a path forward. Not like they wanted to leave the workplace. They just literally didn't see a path forward. And they also weren't getting promoted because they were having these terrible conversations with employers around, oh, well, do you think you can keep up with the work after they had committed themselves for over 10 years to the company and been high producers? So they were totally stigmatized. Meanwhile, their husbands were actually getting you know, paid more because they were having families. So that to me just was so, so wrong. But what was ironic in this whole situation was that so many companies were coming out and saying, we need more women. And you, know, you have this sort of corporate feminist string where you know, the amount of advertising around Mother's Day with companies saying like, we believe in mothers, we believe in women. 
And yeah, so, you know, they were definitely spending the marketing dollars on it, but did they have, were they actually spending the time and energy on finding women that they were going to retain or move into lateral roles who were sort of stagnating in their current positions? Because that's really the pipeline problem in many ways. It's again, it's, it's women start to leave the pipeline. So you see like it's about 45% women entering entry-level positions. This is a McKinsey study that really looked at corporations. And it's like 45% are women, 55% are men. So obviously there's a delta there that's not great but to begin with. But you know, as you go down the pipeline, I think you know, the C-suite, it's something like there's fewer than 17% white women in the C-suite. So obviously the numbers are really apocryphal when you think about women of color and the the reason is that you know women aren't getting promoted through the pipeline. They're stagnating. Well, so all these things were true. I mean, the numbers have changed a bit, but true 15 years ago. It sounds like for you, it was maybe becoming a mother yourself that really catalyzed that action. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was realizing like, oh, okay, this is me now. This is going to be me. And I don't see me in the, any of these rooms, but I'm actually in a position to change this for other people. So yeah, I mean, I left a really exciting career where I was in media to frankly work on like very, very difficult problems every day. When I mean, now Power to Fly works with literally America's largest corporation, if you can guess what that is, and down to like fastest growing ones like Slack or, and then, you know, major financial companies like, like American Express and Goldman Sachs. So um, we don't shy away from companies either that are problematic in the eyes of of people. I definitely get criticism for that. Like, how can you work for this company? But my response is often, like, we're working with this company. It's really hard to work with this company, but we have to make the effort to bring in more women into their pipelines. So they actually become a place that can perform better on a larger scale. I mean, some of these companies have 10, 20,000 employees. It's my firm belief that you, if you actually have gender diversity in the higher ranks, some of these decisions that they're making wouldn't be happening. And mm-hmm. so it's really a, a social imperative, but it's also a huge economic imperative for companies. You know, I spend a lot of time at the Council on Foreign Relations now, which is a think tank here in New York City. And I'm part of this, I go to a lot of lunches that are led by um, women at, at major organizations that are doing research around the economic benefits of gender parity. And um, there's great... You know, if you, the council has published some really interesting reporting on the fact that the fastest ways to actually grow the GDP is through gender parity on a global scale, but also in the U.S. Um, and a lot of that is because women really do reinvest back into the community, into the economy at much higher rates. You know, can I interrupt um, you? I've heard that before. What yeah. on earth does that mean? Well, I mean, just think of it like anecdotally, you know, women... For, okay, so I have two kids. I literally have to pay one woman and then another woman part-time to help take care of my two kids so that I can go to work. So that's reinvesting in two other women right that there. That sound like a good system though, but yeah, I, your point's taken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, but I like to work, you know, I like to get out of the house and work. And also to me, it's like, you know, the women do 85, oh, something like 80% of the housework and you got to check me on these figures, but 80% of unpaid labor at home. And people are like, oh, well, that's great. She gets to spend time with her kids. But if you actually dig into the numbers, like 15% of that time is actually spent with children while the rest of it is spent on like picking up the dry cleaning, doing the, the, the cleaning within the house, doing the cooking. And that's still, you know, that's still if she's the number one primary breadwinner. So, you know, you have to, to look at, at these different factors. I mean, women do reinvest back. They're also the biggest household spender. So if they have more 
more spending power. You can imagine that that's very helpful to the economy. Oh, I mean, the other thing is domestic violence, right? Um, still a huge problem here in the U.S. And, and a very big problem, obviously, globally. You know, when women have careers and they're independently, they have independent means from their spouse, they're able to get out of relationships that really can kill their career, actually. Like you think about the amount of productivity that's lost when a woman is abused at home. That really, that affects the economy overall. And frankly, in, in the United States, if we actually treated that, if we treated domestic violence as a larger societal economic issue, I think people would pay a lot more attention to it. And they do that more in Canada than they, I mean, Canada has been able to reframe that on a legal basis. That's interesting. So, I've never heard that argument, but it, it makes sense. And I'm curious to dig into that. Um, yeah. I mean, you just think of like the hours lost when, when a woman is literally beaten up, like she can't go to work. Yeah. There, and there, then there's so many laws on the books too, that we're not aware of. The World Bank did this study on all the laws that literally prohibit women from certain jobs. You know, like, do you know in Russia, women, women are prohibited from driving a train? Like, again, fact check me on this. I'm sorry if people, people are listening to this, but like, I'm just remembering things from this report. So I think, you know, there are some countries where like women are literally not allowed to be in jobs where they can't lift certain weights. So that prevents them from like, you know, delivery jobs, et cetera. So you just think about all the discriminatory practices out there when it comes to gender. And, you know, also consider the fact that like, if you're trans, for example, like, you know, all these things are prevented from doing. So that hurt our economy overall. They don't just hurt the individual. So we have to look at it that way. What is the mission of Power to Fly? So the mission of Power to Fly is, you know, we're really, we've set up this incredible community where massive employers are on here to really reframe how they talk to underrepresented genders, so women and non-binary people. I mean, men are welcome if they're allies. You know, we do have men who sign up on the site. Um, and we love, we're not going to be able to move anything forward if we don't have them as part of the conversation. But, you know, the goal overall is to really think about how companies have recruited women in the past. And they've done it under this par- the, the male paradigm, right? They've done it. They've used job descriptions that overwhelmingly appeal to men. I mean, just like three or four years ago, it was dawning on people that if you don't write the word, I need a ninja or a craftsman for a job that's supposed to be universal. I mean, it's actually illegal to write a job description that's targeted towards one gender or to, to, write, to, to advertise towards one gender, right? But people were just like inadvertently slipping these things in. You know, I think we're all guilty of it. I just certainly had to catch myself a couple of times. You know, that was sort of the first step there. But then, you know, one of the things that I'm really looking into is the fact that like job descriptions in general are just very much targeted towards predominantly male population because they're a laundry list of skills that you need to meet. And studies have shown, I mean, there's a great recent one by LinkedIn that women, well, actually this was a Harvard Business Review study that, that women apply to jobs if they meet 100% of the criteria, but men do it if they meet 60%. And so, you know, it's so interesting to hear like all these, I've heard all these diversity and inclusion advocates out there saying like, you know, women aren't aggressive enough. They need to get out there and they need to apply more. But that's not the reason. The reason women aren't applying to those jobs is not because they don't want the job. They're not aggressive enough. They literally don't want to waste their time applying to something that's not a total match. Furthermore, they've been disappointed and rejected so many times that they just figure, why would I apply to something if I'm, I don't have 100% of the skills? 
No, and I think um, I think it's worth pointing out that there's two ways of looking at that dis- that discrepancy, right? Of of men be having sixty percent of let's say sixty percent of the qualifications and women having a hundred percent. One way is to look at it as women aren't being you know aggressive enough or or confident enough. But you could also look at it as this might be a, a symptom of the fact that there is still bias in our systems. So men may be hired even though they only meet 60% of the qualifications, let's say, versus women might need to have more of the qualifications to be considered. Yeah, but the, there was a follow-up study that actually showed that the reason is that the number one reason women aren't applying if they don't have 100% qualifications is they're literally saying, like, why would I waste my time? It's not an ambition thing. And that goes back to the fact that like women are doing 80% of the household work. Like, what are we, when are we supposed to do it? Like, you know, most women are what between midnight and 5 a.m. I mean, and also job descriptions, job applications are just ridiculous. Like, literally, like one or two day tests where you pile that onto the fact that like you don't have backup childcare benefits, things like that. It's like, it's very hard to take the time to often apply to these jobs. So, I'm not, what we're actually trying to do is increase the application rate for women. And there's all sorts of other ways that you can sort of de bias job descriptions and think about it. But part of me is thinking now, and part of what Power to Fly does is like, we literally say, okay, let's not talk about jobs. Let's not talk about jobs. When you're recruiting company, women, you know, large corporation X, you need to actually start a dialogue with the group of women that you want to bring in and you want to recruit. And it's, it's a long conversation where you're building relationship. It could be days, weeks, months. But if you're looking for senior women, the first thing you really need to do is hold like an informational event for her where you're giving something of yourself first to get her time. Yeah, and what does that look like? So we invite women who could fill the jobs, but they don't think they can fill the jobs, right? That's the irony too. It's like literally we are the ones who screen the men before they can screen themselves out. We say, no, 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 it's not up to you. I'm sorry. You might think that you don't meet 100% of these qualifications, but no company actually wants you to meet 100% of these qualifications. You know, how many, have you ever hired someone who literally meets 100% of the qualifications that you're asking for? No, you're putting a broad list there so that they can at least hit a certain percentage of it, right? And frankly, you want someone who's going to want to move up and learn, not someone who's just making a lateral move. So the 100% qualification is just silly. You know, what we do is we have a team that literally goes out and finds a big group of women that match the roles that the company has asked us to source for. We invite them to an exclusive event, which involves some dinner usually, some drinks. We have executives in the room and hiring managers. Really important that it's not just the recruiting team. It's literally the people they're going to be working with. And you know, we and start out. To, why is that important? Well, because having a conversation with someone, meeting them face to face, is a much better way to convert into a hire or eventual hire to build that relationship than just getting a resume. Because people are also biased with resumes, right? So we've all seen the studies that if you have the exact same resume and you put a man's name on it, you put a woman's name on it, the man will you know get X percentage more request for interview. Also, the pay will be higher eventually versus the woman. It's, it gets obviously even worse when you put names that are associated with certain ethnicities. All these things have been, I think that was a Yale study. So, you know, we get everybody in the room and then we have, um, the company gives like a tech talk. And it's really important that that tech talk, and by the way, we don't just source for technical roles. We do sales, marketing, like cyber, everything now. So I'm just using a tech talk, but like 
we've done events where it's like you literally you learn about sales tactics, et cetera. So the company gives a little bit of inside knowledge to the room and starts a dialogue. And so, you know, I was at one the other day that was fantastic. It was actually with WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers. And you know, they're reframing around this whole new wellness mission, getting away from the point stuff, which actually some of our users really find repugnant. So it's, you know, it's good. They're bringing in more women who are going to change the culture, right? They have a new CEO. So it's really, it's exciting time for the company. But, you know, we literally, we had this fantastic panel of women there who were talking about, you know, dealing with millions of customer service requests and how to build the tech around that. And you had this dialogue going on with the women who were invited in the room around like what kind of tech stacks they were using. It got incredibly technical. And they were literally talking about code and then QA and how to test everything. And it was just fantastic. And it was a real dialogue around what the women there are working on. They were giving to to get and to build this relationship. And then, you know, we go into a panel a little bit on work-life, how people work their work-life balance. But everybody thinks like you're going to do a women's event, you kind of have to shrink it and pink it. And have women sit around and talk about like how they are able to balance. And it's obviously incredibly important. But at the same time, women just want to know if they can belong there. And if, they're, if they can excel there with their work product. And so, yeah, we have a tech talk. Then we have a panel where we can ask panelists any questions about what they're working on. We open it up to Q&A questions. And then people always stick around afterwards and like have drinks and then talk to them, the people, the hiring managers. And then... The next day, you know, everybody fills out a survey. So the really interesting data point about this is oftentimes when we're putting together a big team, I mean, sorry, a big group of women to come, we say to them, what's your willingness to work at this company or apply to this company? The numbers are usually pretty low, right? This is when they agree to come to the event. Right, right. And they often say like, I'm not interested in this company. I'm not interested in a new job. And say, yeah, we get that. Just come to a networking event. You know, you're going to learn something. And... We give them a survey right after the event. On average, we've done over 75 events in the last 12 months. Women's willingness to work has been raised by 60% on average at that company after the event. So talk about, I mean, that, that, that completely erases all the problems with job applications, right? Where you literally have a smaller percentage of women applying to jobs because they do not want to take the time doing all this work for a company that that has given them nothing first. And so that's really power to fly in a nutshell. And it's much more complicated than that. And it takes a lot of work. And we have a, we have a job. We let companies post all their jobs on there so people can get a taste of what's, what it looks like. And they, but the goal is to have like a constant dialogue between women and companies where instead of asking the woman to like basically marry you, you're asking them to start a relationship and, and start the conversation first. And it just results in much, much better results for these companies. That's interesting. So rather than just putting this long list of ideal requirements out into the ether and having people who are looking to find a job respond, and again, like you're saying, they have to wait what they believe is their likelihood of getting that job. You're instead encouraging companies to create events where they are going to demonstrate their expertise, attract an expert audience, and then put them in a situation where there can be learning about one another, right? The the women or the potential right. employees in the room get to learn about what the company's offering and maybe meet the people they could be working with. And then at the same time, the team members or the hiring managers are seeing not just a blind resume, but a full person who's asking interesting questions. Exactly. And it's, it seems like such a big commitment for companies. Like, oh, I don't know. It's a lot of work. But if you think of the ROI, the return on investment, 
you're getting like a hundred women in the room who literally are your target audience. Cause that's the work that we do to make sure the right women are in the room first. And those women, when something happens in their workplace, they're going to think of you first when they want to move. Like women don't move laterally either because it's like, why would they go to the devil? They don't know when they're used to the devil. They know, right? That's another issue there. And so you're developing, you have a relationship with them, but it also just allows these companies to keep these very like warm, passive lead lists. And the other big thing about job, the job market is like 70% of candidates in the global workforce are passive, meaning that they're not looking for a job right now. And why would you start a job board company where you're focused on 30 to 30% of people who are looking, right? So we very much focus on this passive job market too, where you know, we're giving women opportunities they didn't even know they had, right? That's really where the, the value comes in. It's like you and I, we always think like, oh, I don't know about you, but it was like, well, how am I going to find a job? I'm, well, no, this isn't about fun. This is about building relationships with companies and having that network. Men have been, they do build through school and other means. And I've certainly been able to build it through school and other means too. So it's not just gender specific, but I've been very lucky on that front. And we're trying to extend that to other people. Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers Customer Research Delivered. Customer Research Delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about customer research delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. One of the original approaches Power to Fly took to, I guess, the pipeline problem was this idea of having remote work be more front and center, right? So you can imagine, and I, I know you do, that there are women in tech, but they don't happen to necessarily live in Silicon Valley. They, they may be all over the world. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about how the remote work piece played a key role early on? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like a lot of startups reflect the personalities of their founders and the, obviously the desires of their founders. I mean, that makes sense, right? And, you know, both my, my co-founder, had been working remotely through the birth of her three children as a chief technical officer of a large platform called Avaz.org. So she was obviously, you know, she's a huge believer in the power of remote, but also the power of remote in, in not only um, allowing her to keep working through these different pregnancies, but also the ability to be able to source a team from anywhere. It was highly productive. Her spouse was also the CTO of the Huffington Post when I worked there. And, um, she was able to take like a very fast growing startup to the next level by sourcing remote talent as well. And so that's how we were able to really scale Huffington Post as well. So I think part of companies that were able to grow very quickly on the remote side, you know, meanwhile, I'd been in places like the Washington Post that were very post remote for a while. And, and now that's not so much the case anymore. And so we were always stuck with the same, you know, this, this talent pool in Washington, D.C., which, you know, obviously there's, it's very hard to grow the number of people within the area, right? So part of it was just like looking at the business successes that we had been part of in the past 
and thinking that remote would be a very good way for companies to understand how to how to get on board with. But it also just opened up this world for women around the globe to be able to, you know, work at opportunities that they just don't have locally. And it makes um, sense that on the company side that having so I mean of course, there are challenges to remote work, which we'll talk about, but on the company side, if if the goal really is to get more women in your company and more qualified, awesome women, that expanding the pool from which you're drawing would make a lot of sense. But you've also talked publicly about the benefits of remote work for women or caregivers specifically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say though that since you know we started out focus on remote, but since then we really focus on in-office roles for companies too now. So we do a huge amount of sourcing for companies that need people to be working around their headquarters, but they're often flexible as well, right? So like we'll do a lot of companies who, you know, just want people to be within like a certain radius of the company, but they can work from home, but you know, if they need them to come in for big meetings and stuff, that's important. So you know, we have to respect the fact that the market hasn't transitioned enough to the point where we'd actually have like a viable business for women if we focus on remote. I mean that's sort of the the economics just aren't there yet. We're certainly getting there, but they're not there yet. And you know, we have a lot of work to do on that front. Like as we, t- we started this conversation talking about how work is just still sort of stuck in the 19th century. <laughs> and so obviously that's changing over time. But the benefits to remote work as a woman are, they're huge in many ways. You know, I, my, I had a baby about a year ago, a second baby, and I did have to continue working a lot through my, I mean, I really didn't take any maternity leave, which... It's very antithetical to the values that we espouse at, at Power to Fly, but you know, unfortunately, reality set in. And um, it was a critical time at the company where I had to just be working on these projects. And so, but because I was able to do that to work remotely from home, I was able to nurse my baby, obviously, you know, recover and take naps and be able to come back and work late at, you know, at night, et cetera, when I had these different opportunities to be able to get back on the on the computer. And, and let me be super clear. I had a huge, I had a lot of help, right? I had, I had someone there with me all day who was helping me with the baby. So I'm not espousing this as, as it, it's, it's very, very difficult for anybody to really do unless you have full-time help with you. And I had 24 hour help. So plus a spouse was going to work. So that allowed me to, to stay in the game, obviously. So that was important. Actually, this is a terrible example. I'm sorry, because, because I'm not <laughs> advocating remote work to not let you have maternity leave. So let's say... Wait, wait, let's wait till I get to the part where we live by the values we espouse and then we can... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) No, but I understand. I mean, and I think what you're getting at is that being a working parent is very challenging. Running a startup is very challenging. Sometimes... If somebody's set up that way, then you can do it. But I guess the better thing to focus on is actually the fourth trimester. Or not the fourth trimester is really maternity leave, but the fifth trimester. (laughs) When you do go back to work after your maternity leave and... You realize like how much time is wasted, not only commuting, but also just pumping in the bathroom. When if you were able to work remotely, you could be way more productive at home and be able to have a healthy relationship feeding your child. And also be able to keep it, you know, you wouldn't be commuting nearly as much. I mean, just think of like the sort of the benefits to also the, the larger um, ecosystem, not having less people on the road, et cetera, and to well, company. Right. It's funny too that, you know, like you've said, a lot of people, a lot of companies really are resistant to remote work, but it's somewhat surprising to me that they aren't open to things like temporary, you know, returning from maternity leave 
remote onboarding or, you know, it, it surprises yeah. me that, uh, yeah, sure. Remote work sounds hard. Our infrastructure is not set up for that, let's say, even though we could change it. Right. But it's weird that there isn't like a, oh, for returning parents, we have three months remote work or for returning parents, we have six months part-time remote, part-time on-site. You know, it, it's odd to me that those sort of middle ground solutions haven't been given more attention. I mean, I think part of the problem is like Iris Bonet, she wrote this fantastic book called um, Quality by Design. She's at Harvard and I actually heard her speak at the council. So back to my council plug. But, you know, what was hugely, what was just so tremendously interesting is she talks about like, what if we were to make flexibility and remote work an opt-out feature versus an opt-in feature, like 401ks, right? That's the example she uses that people, you know, people would not have 401ks if it was an opt-in feature. If you were like, oh, you can sign up for a 401k. Now, by default, like companies literally like sign you up for a 401k, right? Or I don't remember exactly. I mean, I guess you can not participate, but by default, you're usually signed up for a 401k. And so that like increased 401k tremendously, right? But if we were to get into a situation where by default, companies were flexible and you value people based on how productive they are, by default, you could work remotely. like. Actually, if you think about it, people would be so much more productive at your company because they would maybe to the, to the detriment of, of their free time. I mean, studies have actually shown that remote people that work from home often produce more because they're overcompensating in many ways. And so you just think about that. that like if people want to keep that as the default, the fact that you can be in a flexible space, then you, you would have an incredibly you know, productive workforce in that front. People would be sort of jumping over each other to prove how much work they were getting done every day. And you would certainly opt in a much larger group of women who can use like the, the ability to just save time, save time from commuting, all that time, save time from getting, like having to get all dressed up in the morning. Mm-hmm. We have so much extra time on our plate you know, because of just gender disparity that's just perpetuated generation after generation. Well, it's funny. Broadly, I feel like what you're saying is that Companies existed one way and then they were like, how come there are no women here? And we're, we're disappointed about that and we want that to change. But really, it sounds like you've worked to identify a lot of underlying structures that might make them less desirable for women and, and either change those or, or encourage companies to reflect on them or, or highlight companies that have changed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody sort of thinks, oh, it's going to be so hard to change my company's culture. We're not asking you to change your company's culture and overnight say, everybody work remotely. Everybody do that. That's just not going to happen. That's unrealistic. What we are saying is things like, take a beat. And instead of sending 50 women a job description that you find on LinkedIn, why don't you send them an invitation to, like, to basically a Zoom link or a go-to meeting webinar to ask them if they are interested in hearing about what you're building right now and to build that relationship or to see if they want to come in and have drinks with some of the hiring managers and executives at your company. So company culture, you can convey that by making sure that, that the values of the company are really laid out, but through people's voices that you're showcasing. That's important, especially if you're remote. I mean, we have a great culture about it, right? Even though we're remote, as you point out. And a lot of our culture is around just transparency. Like there's no way we can function if we're not completely transparent with each other. And what I mean by that is like, if I'm having a bad day, I don't hide that ever. I tell people that report to me that I'm having a bad day. And I tell you know, my co-founder that I'm having a bad day. 
or as if I hadn't slept a lot last night or things like that. And what that does is it doesn't give me any excuses, but it sort of allows me to sort of reframe a little bit of why things are triggering me and what I should be focusing on to get a great use of my time. It also, the other thing that's really important about being transparent about your feelings is like, I've seen so many mistakes made by people who are having a bad day or didn't get any sleep last night or who are trying to burn the candle by working at late hours and thinking that they should push on through when they end up costing the company a huge amount of time, energy, and resources because they weren't transparent that they were probably in, in the kind of state that, that could mess things up that day. So I would much rather someone sort of sit something up or someone raise their hand and say, I need you to triple check me today because I'm having a bad day than someone smiling and being like, I'm, you know, everything's cool. Like that's not, I don't want that kind of culture ever. That's just, that's bad for business. <laughs> well, so. Catherine, we're running low on time. So um, I wanted to ask you, do you have an ask for the audience? Yes, I do. I would love for people to sign up and not so I can pepper you with emails, but so that you can give me some feedback on what you think. I'm going to be launching a new site. Again, it's March 26th. So by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be up live. And the site is really focused on this idea of building community first before sending someone a job description. And so my email is K, like K is in kite. Zaleski, Z is in zebra, A L E S K I at powertofly.com. Feedback is a huge gift. So if you hate it, let me know. It's like really important. You know, please tell me why. If you love something, that's great too. But you know, let me know why. Or if there's something that bothers you, let me know why. I mean, we're building a business here that, you know, we're trying to solve a huge, huge problem that doesn't just fix things for women and corporations. But again, like I said in the beginning, for conversation. I mean, we're trying to achieve higher gender parity within organizations to literally move economies forward. So your feedback is just really important. And with this, I'd like to turn to our think a little different round of questions. Is there a common practice that you think will change in the next 10 years? Well, I guess maybe a common practice right now is, is thinking that the biggest problem right now in the world is income inequality which is, is a tremendous problem, but that's sort of a common practice for people to often say, to talk about that when they talk about global insecurity and global problems and you know why we have certain political parties, et cetera. And so I think a common practice might be moving forward, not thinking of it so much as in terms of income inequality, but thinking of it as data inequality and thinking about how the fact that like people who have the most data are really the people that are going to have power in the future which is sort of scary when you think about it, but that, that also there'll be a huge amount of people when you think of AI and machine learning that might not have jobs, right? And so how do we think about that world and stop thinking about, you know, we, right now we talk, a common practice is to talk about minimum wage, which is again, incredibly important and it's very needed to reset when a minimum wage. Like we, we talk about working class now and, and versus the rich. But what we need to really talk about from a common practice perspective is, is just the not going to be able to work class. I mean, with, with more and more data and AI and machine learning coming to play. Mm. So this is the idea that we're going to have AI roll out and take away a lot of middle-class jobs. I don't know if it's middle-class or lower-class. I don't really know exactly. And, and you, know, you also have to think that like AI has also created a lot of 
or actually technology, so not AI in particular, but technology to be more broad, broad is, is actually generated a lot of jobs. So in, in certain cases, so, you know, drones, for example, it takes a lot of people to, to work on a, one drone versus two fighter pilots in the past, right? But then again, I guess, you know, you had people operating the fighter, <laughs> dealing with the, the, the maintenance of the fighter jets, but there's people that deal with the maintenance of the drones, but now there's people that deal literally with the technology and the, the flying and the operating of the drone. So it's not a net, it's not a, a race to the, to the complete dissolution of jobs, but I think we do have to start talking about the fact that there could be a, a huge swath of the population that whose working power is no longer consequential because of the power of technology. Well, with the goal of you and Power to Fly to, I would say, maybe bring more equity to women's work, um, and I guess first stop me if I'm wrong, is there a view that's widely held by your peers that you just aren't totally convinced by? Or is there, you know, a common knowledge or common practices by others in this space that you reject or disagree with? I do reject, I do get frustrated. I wouldn't say reject. I get frustrated when people talk about the pipeline problem. And there seems to be a huge focus on the fact that, that not enough girls are choosing STEM courses. And a lot of companies have also said, well, there's, the pipeline isn't big enough and we don't have enough graduates coming out of these programs and, and this is a problem. But, but the, the bigger problem is down the pipeline. It's not the entry level situation. I mean, there's a huge amount of people that are entering and, they can, and they're learning within these companies. The middle of the pipeline is the real issue. It's women who want to work now who aren't getting promoted enough, who aren't getting recognized enough. And the more we focus on young girls and the decisions that they're making, the less we focus on the women that are out there that will actually motivate those young girls because those women are starting, they're leaving for lack of, of belonging. So that's something that I see in the field that, that is troublesome. And I have huge respect for the organizations that are trying to increase the number of girls in STEM. Don't get me wrong for a second there. And they're doing a great job. They're not taking away from this conversation. They're focusing on what they need to build. But people are very quick to say that that's the problem when you know they're fixing one part of the problem. I definitely reject that. I mean, the irony too in the situation is you look at people who actually lead tech companies. Like a lot of them dropped. You know, well, I guess they're not the best examples, but you know they didn't get computer science degrees. So a lot of them dropped out of college. Not a lot of them, but, you know, like the founder myth is sort of the guy that, that dropped out of college and didn't get a degree. So it's just ironic, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, okay, I just want to say like, it is a social problem that we're addressing at Power to Fly, but it's, like I said, it's, it's a huge economic problem that we're trying to fix. So also like, I think th- there's some great data out there that says that, that companies with gender diversity in their top ranks perform 30% better than the industry means. So if you have ethnic diversity, it's even better. You know, again, it's like, it's this course economic problem that we've let perpetuate. Where can people find you and Power to Fly online? Powertofly.com. Spelled T-O, not the number two, <laughs> like, exactly. like in the 90s. Yeah. So, you know, come and like, we do free daily live chats. We had you on, which is fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and that's the thing, like we want, we, we're trying to really help women not only you know, upskill for new roles, but upskill in their current role. Like the, I got I got to put more data on the site that talks about the pipeline problem. So I think, you know, that really conveys the issue in a lot of ways. Well, I have about 50 questions that we didn't get to, but Catherine Zaleski, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.